I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're The Editing Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Editing Podcast. So today, we're delighted to welcome thriller writer Andy Maslin. Andy is the creator of Gabriel Wolfe, Stella Cole, and more recently, Inspector Ford. Welcome, Andy. We've been connected on Twitter for a while, so it's lovely to meet you finally face-to-face, or voice-to-voice, at least. Yeah, thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you. So where are we talking to you from today? I am in Salisbury, which is the... uh, We've moved here 17 years ago, so I sort of feel this is my adoptive hometown. You know, I've lived here... Mm -hmm almost as long as I lived, uh, you know, in the town I was, sort of grew up in. But uh, this is what this is, feels like home to me. Oh, Where was that you grew up in then? I grew up in Hemel Hempstead, which... Oh, uh, right. Oh, we know I, Hemel Hempstead, don't yeah, we? Yeah. There we are. New town on the north side of uh, oh. London. Yeah. We're, um, I'm, I'm originally from Bucket, um, near High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. Oh, uh, OK. So yeah, yeah. Not yeah. far from you. And yeah. Denise worked in Maidenhead for many, many years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All from that neck of the woods. Yes. But I'm back in the north, near the wall now, practically, you know. (laughs) Winter is coming, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right, Andy, so before we dig into writing craft, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of about your life before thriller writing and how your storytelling journey began? Sure, I can do that. I mean, I am 58 now, and my first piece of creative writing that I have a record of was when I was six years old. Um, Wow. And my uncle John, who is also a writer and guitarist like me, um, I remember we were up in Nottingham at his house and I half wrote and then mainly dictated this story about a monster on this strange planet. And it's on a very sort of yellowed piece of paper where the, the sellotape has sort of, you know, gone crackly and fallen off and this pink shiny paper stuck on. And that was this sort of shark monster. And uh, he said to me, you can have it back when you're 15. Now, I mean, I'm six at the time, so this is mm. an eternity. And I used yeah. to ask him every time we went up to Nottingham, he said, yeah, when you're, when you're 15. <laughs> and eventually I forgot, when I was 15, he gave it back to me and I still have it in my kind of cabinet. Oh, that's of that's isn't that lovely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when people <laughs> say, how long have you been a writer? I say, currently 52 years. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of been in my blood. You know, my grandfather was a sort of self-educated, you know, classic working class autodidact. He was a butcher by trade, left school at probably 13 or 14. But he always had a dictionary in the house. He used to do crosswords and write to the papers Uh under a a pen name. He used to call himself Vox Populi. You'll remember him saying that in his sort of broad Nottinghamshire accent. Um, My dad's a published poet. So, you know, it's in my blood. And after university, I started working in marketing uh, and gravitated to the copywriting side of things and spent the next quarter of a century doing that, uh, set up my own business with my other half. Wrote lots of short stories, um, but then, you know, actually children came along and and all my creativity basically stopped, you know. It does that. It it has that tendency, doesn't it? (laughs) And uh, anyway, the the boys are sort of older now. it was sort of five, six years ago, I was on holiday with my uh, wife and she said to me, you know, the difference between us, Maz, is you're a writer who does marketing for a living and I'm a marketeer who does writing for a living. And it was one of those kind of light bulb moments yeah. and, and, and you know, a real epiphany. And I almost felt it physically. Oh my God, you're absolutely right. 
came home, sat on the sofa and, and with a sort of pencil and a notebook, out splurged about 10,000 words in longhand of a story, Gosh. which became the first Gabriel Wolf book, as if it had been dammed up all this time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just poured out of me. And, and after, I thought, my God, I think I can actually write a novel because, you know, the longest piece I'd written before that was probably about 5,000 words for a short story. Switched to a computer and I have been writing ever since. You know, I've been full-time now for the last two years. I started making enough money to give up the day job and uh so when that's fascinating Andy so when you sat down you had that light bulb moment is was that something that had been sort of formulating in the back of your head for for years and this was now the opportunity for you to write it down or did it seem to spring from nowhere that particular story well a bit of both I mean the, the the I often um novels come to me with a kind of visual image and I had this image um, of soldiers jumping off um, jumping off a cliff not not downwards but across to a sort of column of rock you know so, so oh. like a, I think they call them sea stacks yep. and it, it I, I had a sort of memory of it and in fact a friend of mine who was at the time a colonel uh, in the army well still is a colonel actually when we were staying with them on base he said oh I know that and he, he had it on videos and it's um, a, a documentary about SAS training Right. And I had just slightly made it more dramatic, but that was a sort of the spark that had just been buried somewhere deep. Um, and kind of when I, I mean, I can't exactly remember what happened, but obviously I sort of sat down, I'm going to write a story about this ex-army guy. And that was just the, the sort of the sentence that came into my head about these six men standing on a cliff in the sort of freezing cold wind blowing off the North Sea or whatever, with armed men standing behind them. And the idea was, you thought, who are these? Are they just going to be, you know, forced to jump off or shot yeah. dead or whatever? And it turns out it's training. Um, right. Yeah. You, that's it. The other thing that I've just noticed about that, Andy, is that this is a question we probably would have asked you if you hadn't already answered it, but you, 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 you don't have a military background. And no, no, no. I spent my, my background is entirely <laughs> cerebral and, and desk yeah, based. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was in the air training court when I was sort of 16. Okay. So, <laughs> but that, that's, yeah. you know, no, no military background at all. So you've got three series, 12 books in Gabriel Wolf, I think, four yeah. in Stella Cole and mm. one Shallow Ground, which is um, the first in the Inspector Ford series. That's right. Um, how important is it for your creative writing process to work in this series format com- compared with creating say standalone novels and is that a commercial decision or a creative decision or a mixture of both it, it's a good question I, it's, it's difficult to answer i try and unpack it because it, uh, you know initially i didn't realize i was writing anything for publication at all i just had this real burning need to to tell this story and write this story and um then I sort of got into sort of self-publishing business and I realized I wanted to write another one. And, you know, to be honest, I think initially it was, it was something I thought, well, I've got this character and I've got to know him a little bit. And I think there's, you know, there's more, more to be done. To, mm. There's more to be done here. And I, I was sort of reading lots of series. I mean, I, you know, I've come from a sort of, I guess you call it a highbrow literary sort of tastes in that, you know, for most of my adult love, I was sort of reading literary fiction, so-called, you know, um, 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez and okay. classics and yeah. uh, you know Margaret Travel. I mean, all, all sort, all, yeah, but mm. definitely literary fiction. And then one day, I, this was another epiphany. I think I woke up and thought, "My God, these books are boring. Nothing happens." <laughs> You know, it's sort of the, you know, the, the kind of uh, I'm like an anti-literary snob. You know, I just thought yeah. the kind of books I was reading, it's usually a sort of uni- a middle aged university professor being a bit fed up with life. And I thought, Jesus, this is so, this is another one. And I, I stopped almost overnight and I bought all of the as it was then the, the Rebus books by Ian Rankin on yeah, my Kindle. Yeah. Uh, and I read them one after the other. It took me about 10 months and I just read them all. And I thought, Binged it. Oh, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and and so so I think, you know, that informed me. And in my copywriting career too, and in my life generally, I realised that, you know, I am a storyteller by nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's in my, it's in my blood. Um, and, and, and what really attracts me to, to, whether it's, you know, literary fiction or genre fiction is a really good story. Um, and actually I find that creatively I find it incredibly liberating to work within a a format because it means I don't have to worry about a lot of things like who am I writing about and what are their internal drivers you know I've established all that Mm -hmm. so I could just throw another problem at them and you know I heap shit on their heads and then just see how they get out of it and I find that that for me is the best kind of creativity because I just get going and you know see what happens to this person I, I did write one standalone which was a sort of a, a modern retelling of, of Dracula both the oh. myth and the original book so I did it in a sort of epistolary style with shop receipts and mm-hmm. emails and blog posts yeah. and you know it, these days I would have included podcast transcripts mm. um, so I followed very much the original sort of style of it I think we've sold about like 300 copies, so it's never going to be a sort of pension. Oh, make novel. that 301. See, Dracula's yeah, yeah. been my favourite of all time. <laughs> really? Oh, well, yeah. I'll be interested in what you think. And I, I'll have to I'll have cool. to read that. I've just finished, um, I was telling Louise the other week with another podcast guest we were talking to, um, that I've just finished Dracul by Dacre Stoker, um, which is based on letters and things that oh. uh, Bram Stoker left behind. Wow. And yeah. so it's about Bram Stoker's early life and it's great. And I, I, I'll just read anything to do with Dracula. So oh, well, there we are. There we are. So I, I'm making a note of that as we speak. <laughs> I mean, you see, you talk about Dracula. See, for me, that's a very interesting thing that nowadays it, it, with a sort of patina of time, you know, Dracula is seen as a sort of, I don't know, it's called a literary classic. It's certainly a classic, you know, mm-hmm. and it's seen, I think it is basically seen as sort of gothic fiction, literary fiction mm-hmm. at the time. It was on a par with Lee Child, I should think. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it was. They, you know, I mean, novels were not taken seriously in the 18th century. They were seen as, you know, with all due respect to to your gender, it was like women's reading, and the, the mm-hmm. dominant literary form was the essay. Yeah. So people like Hazlitt, you know, novels were seen as utterly disposable things, and you know, Dickens, you know, everyone talks about publishing in instalments and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, and what's great about Dracula is it's a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It also <laughs> means it also <laughs> means that in a hundred years' time, you and Harlan Coben might be on. We are going to be there. We're going to be statues. Yeah. Yeah. Required reading. Absolutely. Um, Andy. So you actually, I want to go back to something that you said there about you know having that another light bulb moment when you read um the Ian Rankin stuff um. Was that before you started writing um, for yourself? 
Um, did was, that, do you think that contributed mm, to giving you sort yes. of permission to write? It, that kind of thing, yes. I mean, mm -hmm. as I said, you know, I've always written uh, poetry, so short form, you know, poetry mm -hmm. uh, and, and short fiction. And I always thought, you know, I don't think I've got it in me to write a novel. And then I think because I was thinking it would have to be one of these sort of Hampstead type books, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I consumed, you know, as you said, Louise, you know, binged on Rebus and yeah. and then others too, you know, Henning Mankell and, and got into oh, sort of, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> you know, talk for hours about Henning Mankell and Wallander. But I thought, ah, there's this kind of book. I think I could write this kind of thing. And in fact, I really love this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I did start working through Lee Child's, uh, the, the Reach stories. And one of the things that motivated me was, you know, although I, I loved them and I got completely addicted to Reach, after about 10, I thought, this guy is just the Terminator. Um, you know, I mean, bullets almost literally bounce <laughs> off, yeah. off him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's no, you know, his chest muscles are so thick that he gets shot in the, in the you know, the peck and it just stops a bullet, which A, it doesn't. And B, I just thought, well, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, tension here, if you like, because nobody ever thinks, is he or isn't he, you know? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and so I thought, well, I, I'd, you know, for my sort of protagonist, I'd love to have somebody with these like top skills, but who maybe is a bit more vulnerable. Yeah. Maybe it's, mm -hmm. you know, not quite so obvious that he's going to wade into a group of 20 knife wielding maniacs and come out unscathed. Mm. Mick Heron's books are a bit like that. Some of his, um, uh, oh, the Slough House series. I don't know if mm. you've read any no. of them, but um, some no. of his characters are like that, you know, they're top skills, they're, MI5 or I think, I think it's five. I can't remember now. MI5 or MI6 agents. Yeah. <clears throat> and but there, there's a vulnerability there. You know, they don't they don't always make it, or you're not sure if they're going to make it. And that that it's a it is a different experience to reading something like um, a, a Reacher novel because you you, you that it, it takes on a sort of different a sort of more realistic. Yeah, I, I think for some people probably for some people there'll be comfort in the knowledge that nothing's ever going to happen to Jack yeah. Reacher you know so there's you want that don't you? you want that yeah there's a security there that you can read a good story and you know at the end of it he's going to be okay yeah. but then in other times you do want that uncertainty challenge. don't you that yeah. challenge yeah you do and I mean obviously if you're going for a series the one of the sort of challenges is uh if you want you know because I it is also a commercial thing you know you like um you don't want to kill off your hero. Um, mm, you know, mm -hmm. I can't it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes suddenly dies on off the right and back falls, and then, oh damn it! You know, I should have never done that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a sense that you know, in Michael Gabriel Wolf, you know, you know he's not going to die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So either you you play tricks with the um, the reader. So there's one book I think um, first casualty, the fourth one, where it starts off in media res. You know, in the middle of a firefight, and the opening sentence is. Britta, I'm hit, and he looks down and there's blood everywhere. So, oh my God, you know, and it's, a, it's actually in his leg, so he's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So instead of, sort of killing him physically, I've tried all manner of ways to kill him psychologically. So he, he's, he has PTSD from his time in the forces. And I've basically, yeah, mentally tortured him with everything I could think <laughs> of to, to throw a curveball at him. So although he's, you know, he's not going to die, but his soul takes a battering in every oh. single book um and it's whether he can keep himself together 
that's that's really interesting, um, Andy, and that feeds into uh, my next question. I think you partially answered it in a way, uh, is whether um, you have any tips or things that you've learned about developing a coherent series um, or any pitfalls to avoid. So you've obviously got this thread running through um, with his challenges of PTSD. Um, and that's something that you can you can build on and, and work with through your series. But is, are there any other things that you've learned about um, planning a series of books? Um, yes, although I've sort of, if I, if I say I've sort of learned them, I've learned them by, now by looking down the wrong end of the telescope. Although working <laughs> with um, Thomas and Mercer, uh, it has been a slightly more, um, the other way around, you know, the way it should mm -hmm. be done. I mean, mm -hmm. my, my life has always been about gut feel and, inst uh, you know, impulsiveness and instinct. And then you work with a, a traditional publisher and, and, you know, they want a bit more sort of thought evidencing before you sort of rush off. Mm -hmm. One of the things I, I'd say, one of the things I've learned about a good uh, character-based series is you need to think um, in sort of two or three books ahead. And, and the way I sort of visualize it, if you imagine nine books as being nine sort of stepping stones, each of those books, each stepping stone has a little mini arc that goes from one side to the other. So beginning to the end, there has to be a story arc. You know, it starts here, ends there, the hero gets what he wants or doesn't and changes in some way. Then I envisage it that across the first three, so in groups of three, there's an arc that goes over those three. So it might be, um, Gabriel thinks that he was responsible for killing his brother and over the three books we learn the truth of that backstory mm -hmm. but then you're thinking well okay fine so that that takes us three books ahead so there's been three mini arcs and one sort of bigger one now what so then you have to start seeding in perhaps in book three or book x you know another arc that is coming maybe it's a romantic relationship that goes sideways maybe he's been betrayed in an earlier part of his life and it's and that who is this character mm. um, which is where I am at the moment so in the, the where I am at the moment the book I'm sort of halfway through there's a character from way back who now makes a reappearance and it's going to be the, the sort of culmination of a kind of vendetta if you like um, mm -hmm. so and then you're thinking perhaps even about the whole let's just say you'd always plan to write a nine book series um, an arc that would go right across those full nine books. Now, if you, if you look at um, Wallander, try not to do any spoilers, but as you know, I mean, it's a fixed number of books. Wallander ages in real time like Rebus oh, does. Oh. And the story of him, his story, comes to a very particular ending. And that's that. And you feel incredibly satisfied. There's no sense of, oh, I wish you'd written another one. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. it's natural. like you've got closure, haven't you? Yeah, and it's You're the same with the Martin Beck novels. Yeah, exactly. You get that closure, you feel, I finished, mm. you know, it's like people say, I've done Netflix. You know, you can actually say, I've done Wallander now, I can go on and reread if you want to. Mm. And do you feel though, when you're writing, um, so you've got this sort of, you know, these various sort of arcs within arcs um, yeah. in your head. Does that kind of, is there ever a point where you feel like you 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 get excited about an idea and this sort of the, a bigger overarching arc? Do you have to kind of rein yourself in is what I'm getting at? You know, like, is it, is it sometimes ever a <laughs> distraction because you're thinking three books ahead? Oh, but you've God, got to yeah. Concentrate on the, the, the actual it novel is. arc. The well, novel yeah, arc. I mean, I, 
you know, so you probably sort of get a sense of this, you know, I'm sort of gut feel man, I'm instinctive, I'm broad brush, I'm a pantser, not a planner. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's a miracle that I actually dialed into this meeting today, not tomorrow, or <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning, not eight o'clock in the evening. You know, I, I've always been completely hopeless with, with those sorts of aspects of life. So my head is always full of stories. You know, I walk the dog, we're fortunate, we have beautiful, beautiful countryside around us. And, I, you know, I'm walking along, seeing body dumps everywhere everywhere basically and you know <laughs> horrors and my brain is freewheeling so you know I'm recording stuff into my phone so at the moment I've, I've got essentially five potentially six novels sort of all competing for headspace there's the yeah. one I'm drafting there's the one that's being edited there's the one that's just gone into cold read there's one I had to stop to write the one I was contracted to write there's the one that is with my first readers for Stella Cole there's other plots for other books and sometimes I say, oh my god that's good I really want to write that bit yeah yeah mm -hmm. you know oh you know and I think, will I forget it so you know I've got notebooks all over the place mm -hmm. and a whiteboard and just ideas <laughs> scribbled all over the place and files <laughs> on the computer called no story ideas yeah um so yeah I have to kind of discipline myself but you know Again, with Thomas and Mercer, it's great. He said, you owe us this book on the 16th of November. Yeah. Huh, okay. <laughs> <Get> <laughs> I just start writing it then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I start writing. Like, yeah, literally, because I, I, I'd done one and I'd uh, written two and I'd basically forgotten and I started this Gabriel Wolf book and Jack, my editor, who's now just moved to headline today, said, Andy, just thought we'd have a catch up. Um, so, <laughs> you know, November 16th. Oh, it was like 1st of October. Ah, yeah, no problem. No problem at all. Leave it to me. <laughs> Writing, writing, yeah. yeah, absolutely. When I when I hear you um, talking, describing what's going on in your head there, Andy, it, it, to me, um, th that that story of that that saying that you know everybody has a book in them, uh, and for some people that's where it should stay, but everyone has a book in them. <laughs> that just confirms to me that I don't have a book in me like that. You know, like I hear people like you talk about all these ideas and plans and it's like knowing where to go next and I think you must have all the books that those of us who don't have the books in our heads <laughs> stolen some of your they're books. all in yours yes I think I think you've somehow managed to pull them all in because that sounds incredible well, yeah I've yeah always, I, yeah I mean I, I, I try not to be false modest about it because it's not helpful I think I actually and this is what I was put on this planet to do. Honestly, you know, it took me a long time to figure it out, you know, what I was, what my purpose was. And in fact, for the sort of five years before I was writing the novels, you know, I read lots of theology, I read lots of philosophy, I was reading books about string theory and quantum mechanics and trying to figure out, you know, something like, you know, the thing you can't see at the back of your head. It was that sort of feeling. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get a hold of something. And, and it turned out basically because this thing that Joe said to me, you know, it's what I was trying to get a hold of was that I should be writing novels, you know, yeah. big, big stories, big ideas. And as soon as I did it, you know, it, it was like, as I say, this sort of floodgates opened. And I mean, I've always written st stories. I've always found it very, it's how I sort of communicate. You know, when I'm teaching, I do, used to sort of do a lot of teaching copywriting. Um, and I'm just a natural sort of raconteur, I guess. So mm -hmm. it's in my, and I come from a sort of very writery family. So I actually don't, I mean, a lot of those sort of creative writing course things, I, I think are rubbish, you know, like everyone's got a novel in them and write what you know. Mm -hmm. Write what you know, I think is the shittest piece of advice because <laughs> there'll be no science fiction for a start. There'll be yeah. no zombie uh, or yeah, horror. Yeah, there'll yeah, be yeah, no yeah. vampire novels. No you know, Mary Shelley fiction. would never... 
you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. 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 I, I think it was somebody, I, I can't, was it um, Edith Wharton or somebody said, don't write what you know, write what you'd like to know. Mm. And I think oh, that's, yeah, that's brilliant. That's, that's what right. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and people say, oh, you've been, you, like you said, have you been in the army? No. Well, how come you know so much about it? Because I've got lots of friends who've been in the army and mm-hmm. I make it my business to search out people who are gamekeepers or bell rope manufacturers or oh. forensic <laughs> chemists, you know. And if you say, hi, um, rather than me talking about myself, could you talk to me about yourself? And they go, oh, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, you've, you've just echoed what David Baldacci um, said in one of his masterclasses um, uh, that, you know, that, that video thing you can get. Mm. Um, he said a, a very similar thing that, you know, you can always go and research it people like talking about themselves and some of the, you know some of them you might have to wait a little bit but um you can always find out stuff you know you can always talk to people and and that's such a good piece of device i mean i know you're going to give us some more writing craft mm, tips in a bit mm. but that's a that's a really good one for any beginner author listening to to to, to yeah. you talk now to bear that in mind that you I shouldn't think, yeah you shouldn't rem- ever forget that there's it, no, and, and, if, and if it's not real, then you can make it up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, exactly. The, the job is, it's the job of the imagination. People say, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, well, I make it up. You know, it's what I do. Mm. Um, you know, it's a storybook. It's not a manual for anything. It's not a polemic. It's not supposed to be, I mean, we may get onto something, you know, whether, whether art reflects life and should, should we be saying, should we be writing these kind of characters? But at the end of the day, you know, I sort of, feel that I'm you know purveying escapism and maybe on a deeper level without being too pretentious you know I think I'm saying something about what it's like to be human um which is in a way you could argue that the job of all fiction and and drama back to the ancient Greeks and beyond we're trying to illuminate um what it means to be human from our perspective Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so when um this sort of again you sort of partially answered this but you were talking earlier about we were talking about that issue of sort of reining in and and keeping focused but at the same time thinking ahead about those mm. overarching arcs so that's one thing when you're dealing with one series what what's it like engineering a new series after you've written 12 books in another one is it hard to let go like of 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 Gabriel, how do you get from Gabriel Wolf to from Gabriel yeah. to Stella, and and then it's, start afresh with a completely new set of characters in a new environment? You know, it's a new world. It, it is. And, well, <laughs> it's a good question, um, and it's you know it's gradual for me because you know I'd written quite a few of these Gabriel Wolf books, and I just thought because of the, I love crime. It's probably the genre I love reading the most. I want to write a crime thriller. I want to have a female lead. You know, I had quite a lot of things worked out, and I spent a long time again, mostly on dog walks, trying to create Stella's world and create her backstory before I bothered about stories and plots. So that by the time I came to the first, actually it it was always gonna be a trilogy and then I, with a definite end, I mean, it's not a sport, you know, if, if, actually probably is a spoiler, I shouldn't say this, but (laughs) I I had this idea, it was gonna be a three book story, the end. Um, But at any rate, it was something about what would what would happen to a cop if they were you know if they lost their husband in a in a hit and run and and it's a conspiracy and she starts digging into it and that was all I had but by the time I got to kind of writing the story I'd already got it absolutely fixed in my head who she was who her bagman was who her boss was um, so you got and, to know her on a dog walk basically 
Yeah, many, yeah, many absolutely. dog walks, but that's, yeah, yeah, what yeah. You, that's what you got to know your character first, and then you wrote about. Yes, it. and I think this is a, this would be another one of my creative writing tips: is you, you've, I think you have to start with a character, or, mm. or because I don't like really telling people what to do. I have always started with a character, and I think it's a not bad way to start a book, to start a novel, is to find somebody that you have some sort of emotional connection with, even though you're creating them. And they do, I know it sounds pretentious, but they do surprise you on occasion. Mm. And when you've got a character with something that they desperately, desperately need, then I think you're kind of at a position where you could think, how am I gonna flesh this out? You know, and then then you start thinking about the story or the plot, and then there's a bit of back and forth. One of the great things I I learned from Jack Butler, who's my editor at Thomas and Mercer, and he just left, (laughs) traitor, was um, <laughs> it's not just about what they want. I mean, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, famously said that every character should want something, even if it's a glass of water. And people get that. Oh, yeah, I get that. Fine. But I've sort of used this in my teaching, which is fine. But what happens if they can't have the glass of water? In other words, uh, what's at yeah. stake? And that's my little twist. That's my little contribution. Is what's at stake for the character if they don't get what they want? And I do an exercise where I get people to imagine a character, imagine a glass of water, and say, now find a way to stop them getting the glass of water. Right. And, and then you say, right, Brilliant. what are they going to do about it? And that reveals character, mm-hmm. as in not right. the character. But that's, it's the difference between personality and character. Character is what happens when you put a, a challenge in front of somebody and they have to behave in relation to that challenge. I mean, if it's a sort of invisible force field, what are they going to do? Are they just going to be passive? Are they going to break through it? If it's a waterfall, are they going to jump over? You know, if it's a dinosaur with a ray gun, you know, and yeah. without without there being any stakes, it's still not a very it's it's a tale, if you like, or it's a it's a plot, but it's not a story. I mean, without getting too sort of exercise no, about which mm-hmm. is which. I but like that absolutely makes sense because that that those are the books we've all probably picked up, the, the ones that we're bored with, because we're kind of like, yeah. And that was mm. that was predictable because the, the character wasn't challenged. It just went from the journey went from A to B. There was no, yes. there was no, there were no obstacles in the way. And that that's, I think that's a really useful mm. thing. Even as an editor, that's a really useful thing to understand. Particularly if you're not a structural editor. I'm not a structural editor. Mm. And it's, it's really valuable to to hear that. Mm. So we've all ca- always kind of sort of started in on the sort of you know the writing process here um Andy um mm. and I think we'd all agree that um that, that being an independent author really has never been easier you know because of all the digital tools available and yeah. self-publishing but the craft of writing is is it just still as hard um uh-huh. so you've already um mentioned um a couple of tips there um but is there is there anything else that you would want to talk about that a beginner author would do well to pay attention to um yes i think i think there is and you know i because i'm a broad brush kind of a person i'm going to i'm going to start there because I think there are, as you know, because, um, you know, Louise, you're one of them, fantastic stylist uh, aware editors who, you know, if you're a Jeffrey Archer type of person, shall we say, Mm -hmm. not being Mm -hmm. too rude about it, you know, if you can't string a sentence together, but you can string a story together, that's not a problem. The problem's the other way around, which is, I think, the problem with a lot of literary fiction, very good stylists, they haven't Mm -hmm. got a storytelling bone in their body. Mm -hmm. So my... If I can, I'll give you two tips. The first tip is don't mistake a situation for a story. 
Um, by, and what I mean is you get that sort of what if exercise, you know, in creative writing institutes, what if, blah, blah, blah. And, and when people sort of, you begin a writer, they'll have, the, oh, I've got a book of you. I know, what if reading was outlawed and, you know, punishable by death? Oh my God, that's amazing. And, you know, that you can get a long way into a novel with that. You can build a world and you can think about the logo of the sort of fascist government that's outlawed reading and you can have names for the, you know, the commander of literary punishments. And then you see people on Twitter saying, oh man, I'm blocked. I've written 30,000 words of my work in progress and I'm blocked. And I was, and I, do you want to know why you're blocked? Because you haven't got a story. You've just mm. got a situation. Because when you say, what if it reading was outlawed? I'm like, okay, well, what if it were? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, if you read a book, you'd be killed. Okay, page two. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. my yeah. thing would be, let's say you've got um, a police chief who's responsible for enforcing like policy raids, policy rather, and he raids a secret library and has the librarian arrested and then, he, you know, all the troops go off, the black clad people go off the library and he's left alone in the library and he picks up a book and, and he opens it, guiltily opens it. And five hours later, tears streaming down his face, he puts the book down and he, 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 he has a change of heart. He realises he has to save the librarian from the firing squad. And then it is, how does he free her without ending up tied to a post himself? And now I think we have a story which... You know, yep. sort of archetypal yeah. terms you could call rescued in the maiden or whatever. So what if reading was punchable by death and the person responsible for killing everyone who read became a reader? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that yeah. is all the I would do with anyone is just a level where you can, because then there's all sorts of hijinks and, and the, the setting falls by the wayside. You know, is it a love story? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's nothing to do with love maybe it's something else maybe it's about personal liberty or who knows but uh, something you just introduced there Andy sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. but it, it come it, it harks back to something you said earlier and that you 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 were at pains to say you were talking about character as soon as you you turn the what if into a into a that that sort of trans transformation yeah. that happens yeah. you're 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 it, you're as a reader you're then you're invested. Mm-hmm. You're invested in a character, a person, and and yeah. that's 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 a much more interesting story because that's something we can get our teeth into as readers, rather than a than that just a, a situation. Well, I think it's like the difference between. I mean, I'm, you know, metaphors go all over the place. Like, it, you don't want it to be two dimensional. It's just like a shadow show. Like you said, it just goes from A to B. Mm-hmm. And and also, I think it ties into what we we're saying earlier about write what you know. Well, I know a lot about people. And that's been the sort of subject of inquiry of my entire life, you know, and it's what I'm fascinated by. And it could be on another planet. They could be, you know, bees. You know, I read that novel, The Bees, um, or Doctor Who or whatever. And the best of these stories doesn't matter about the setting. It's really about very human failings or human strengths like Mm. sacrifice or greed or... Mm corruption or lust for power and you everybody knows people like that or maybe they even recognize those characteristics in themselves so when you have a sort of 93rd century space person um cheating on their space boyfriend yeah the world building doesn't matter anymore because what we're talking about is faithlessness and i think that is what i mean about explaining the way you feel people are 
to your reader and mm. why I think you know that the whole hang-up on sort of genre fiction versus literary fiction is is a sort of you know not worth talking mean, people do talk about it but it's not really worth talking about you know at its best I think the best literary fiction uh, sorry the best genre fiction is like the best literary fiction you know we just lose ourselves in yeah. this person that we identify with yeah. or engage with or can imagine or can relate to even if they're technically a bad person mm, yeah yeah no, mm. I'm definitely with you there on the um entry literary fiction snobbery front mm. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I go back to something just thinking about your writing process here Andy mm. that you mm. you mentioned earlier well we talked about um the the story arcs uh, both within the novel and then across a series of maybe a, a three books in your series so mm. you're thinking ahead and planning that but you described yourself as a pantser, didn't I know. you? <laughs> How, can, you explain, can you explain that one? <laughs> uh, well, um, yes, I, 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 it's evolved um, mm -hmm. because I've realised that, you know, w w for the first sort of three years, it was a sort of hobby. I mean, I was making money, but I had a day job as well. And, so, and it was all indie. It was all self-publishing. So to a certain extent, I could please myself. So, you know, I could just start a book and kind of push on and it would, you know, it would get to where it was going. Um, when I started working with Thomas and Mercer, uh, you know, I, I published five works of nonfiction with, with um, traditional publishers. So I'm just going to use that relationship. But in, in fiction, it's quite different in that you're not an expert. I mean, I, when I wrote my copywriting books, I was just commissioned and I was the expert and they pretty much took what I delivered. Mm -hmm. Fiction is saying, well, we need to see an outline or I don't really get this thing. You know, why are these two murders happening I don't see any connection between them you know if Ford was like this then surely he'd be more like that can you do something about it um, and I realized that if I was going to take this on as a full-time job I had to get a bit more professional about it and it does so so where I've got to now is a sort of hybrid because what I do is sort of I start off with a one sentence description so like a classic Hollywood sort of um, log line mm -hmm. can I you know so the, the one for Shallow Ground is um, Detective Ford has a killer to catch, but can he escape his own dark secrets? Okay, so we, we've got this, and I can sum up the plot in sort of one sentence. Then I make it a paragraph. Then I go to a sort of, you know, I, I always like the metaphor of a, having a gun held to your head. People say, oh, I can't possibly explain what I do in 30 minutes. I say, well, how about if we had a gun to your head? I bet you could then. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. or 10 seconds. You'd manage, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I sort of write a kind of treatment, you know, it's a two or three page treatment. Sounds like an outline to me, Andy. It sounds <laughs> like an outline. But, you know, I, I read, um, is it Kerry Wilkinson who writes the sort of uh, Jessica Daniel books? And I read uh, an interview with Kerry and he said he wrote like, you know, 36,000 word outlines. I thought, well, that's like half a book. That's a book. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And I thought, geez, so, you know, but because I am impatient, I start realizing what's going to happen. I really want to write it properly. So I have this sort of outline, not quite scene by scene, but kind of action by action point. Then I know what's going to happen. And I put it to one side and I kind of take a you know, back up a few yards and then take a run and a jump and get into it. And, and if I feel I'm slightly lost, I look and it says, oh, now we should be doing this. Right. So you can rein yourself back in a little bit then maybe. A bit. So yeah. it's like, I guess you could say I'm kind of pantsing each chapter. Yeah. So you kind of know where novel. you need to get to roughly and you're, yeah. so you're pantsing the bits in between. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that kind of is the best of both worlds. Yeah. It's a hybrid, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that's coming back to what you were saying earlier about your publishing commitments now. It's become, you've 
surely it's a, essential that you're a bit more organized <laughs> this is your job. yes it is <laughs> and i mean you know it's a very interesting uh, switch because i still self-publish two of the series but you know the, the thing with working with a, a publisher as i said which i've done before is that you are now working with people who aren't employed by you mm. so mm. you know the jack russell the um, sort of dev editor the copy editor the proofreader, everyone, they're all employed by ultimately by amazon but yeah. you know thomas and Musk, not by me yeah. and although they're, they're, they're the sweetest kindest and most generous bunch of people i know that if i turn in a piece of crap they would tell me yeah. Because yeah. they are going to have to go to their, you know, investment committee or the acquisitions team or their director and say, I think this guy is worth investing in. So I, I feel it's, you know, it behooves me to turn in a decent first draft that's as close as possible to something that they want to publish. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's working. It's fine. It, it's going really well. And I, uh, that I think you, you make those compromises. If you want the security blanket of a big publisher behind you and you accept their dollar and you sign their contract and you accept that their working methods are the working methods you should follow having said that you know on the last one jack said no no, no i'm fine if you've, you've got this idea of a dead soldier in the middle of a ghost village in on salisbury plain i love that just just go with it see where it takes you so they've learned to trust you though i think that's yes. the thing is it's a collaboration yeah, yeah. isn't it it's like you've 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 kind of um You've delivered, and so yeah, yeah, and so yeah. now I mean, now there's a little bit more. Perhaps... There's a bit more trust. I mean, can we yeah. use? It? I think yeah. there there is a bit more trust. You know, and I've always, um, you know, been at pains to, to either say explicitly or communicate the idea that you know, I am going to be an easy author to work with. Mm. I'm not one of those prima donnas who's going to dig their heels in over every semicolon. And if, if you tell me it needs to be more like this, I'm going to make it more like that because, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know. We could sell more books. Yeah, I could have more yeah. readers. Yeah, yeah. You know, which Andy, seems to be important. Oh, sorry, no, beg your pardon. Um, I just say you... this seems like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try one more time. It seems to me that we're all in this. You know, we we both want the same thing. The more sales we get, the better everyone likes it. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask you how you came to get your um? Uh, contract with Thomas and Mercer you can and it's a good story and, and I feel it, it it reflects well on on me and them actually which is I submitted book three in the Stella Cole series called Hit mm -hmm. and Done to the Kindle Storyteller Awards 2018 mm -hmm. uh, it was very easy you just put Kindle Storyteller Awards as one of your keywords when you're publishing the book on KDP you know the Kindle mm -hmm. Direct Publishing Platform mm -hmm. And I got a call from uh, one of the guys at Amazon who said, um, you've been shortlisted. Fantastic. Wow. Would you like to come along to the launch party? I went, fuck me, try and keep me away. This is excellent. <laughs> That's so yeah, I know, right? I mean, this is, you know, self-published. Would self you like to? Like, no. <laughs> Would you like to come? You know, it's going to be Lorraine Kelly as the chairman of the judges. I'm doing, but mate, you know, I'm in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, turned up Best Bip and Tucker and then Champagne and Canapes, a proper big publishing launch. And there were five of us who we're all still really good friends actually we were sort of on a whatsapp group and we we met up for dinner you know once or twice so that within itself was really lovely to meet four other authors like that but although i didn't win in a way i did because when we afterwards you know all your nerves have gone i was talking to a lady you know, I had a glass of champagne in my hand and said so who do i have to talk to at amazon about getting a publishing deal 
And she said, well, my name's Laura Deacon. I'm the publishing director. You can talk to me if you like. No! <laughs> Brilliant. Like, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we had a chat. And, and what, what I mean about it reflecting so nicely on them is she was so generous with the time. There was none of that sort of thing you get at networking things. If you were looking over your shoulder the whole time, see if there's anyone yeah. they should be talking to. No, she just was... You know, we just had a really nice chat and she said, well, you know, I've got to go and talk to some of the people. I'm going to introduce you to Jane Snellgrove. She's one of my acquisitions editor. I think she'd be perfect for you to talk to, which she did like the day later. Jane and yeah. I had a conversation. Yeah. In the end, we decided or they decided and I agreed it, it wouldn't make sense for them to republish the Stella Cole books, which is what they often do. She said, but would you be interested in developing a, a new series with me? And I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, nah, no, that actually doesn't appeal. Oh, no, to be that, that's not working I'll, for me. I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it. You know, all best. So we, so we did, and I came with you know a bunch of different characters, a bunch of different ideas, and, and we settled on Inspector Ford, although he wasn't called that originally. Um, <laughs> if you'd like, he had the most pretentious name ever for a fictional on, detective, Ajax Page. <laughs> it worked for me. What's, it, anyway, what's Ford's first name? Yes. What is his first name? It's a bit like Morse. Oh, is it uh, Morse? Oh, you don't no, know. I know, I know, I know what it is. Uh, uh-huh. And it begins with the same letter, but it isn't Endeavour. It's not Endeavour. He's only ever known as Ford. He, his nickname in the station is Henry. Right, right. Um, but, and there's a lovely yeah. bit of play around nicknames because he's sort of, um, well, I would say partner in crime, and his sort of oppo is a sort of for- deputy forensics head, Hannah Fellows, is on the Asperger spectrum. And she's got a big thing about nicknames. She loves nicknames. She gets one in book two. So the, the nickname, which I didn't really think about at the time, has come to be quite a little leitmotif in, in, in the books. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff about truth-telling and honesty, which I quite like. That, and he drives a discovery. And, and this is one of the things about, I think, you know, writers' brains. You, you never, I, I think, the other day, I was like, that's amazing. You know, out of all the cars he could have drove, he's got a discovery. What a great car for a detective. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you thought of it. Because <laughs> I thought he picked it. So, and it was a coincidence. So I love, you know, little things like that that just happen. Mm-hmm. And they, that's what I mean about characters taking you by surprise. You start yeah. thinking that, I thought, oh, he chose a car and it turned out to have a really good name. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, so um, um, yeah, that's how we got that deal going. That, that's that's wonderful, and again, you just it just shows that it never hurts to ask, does it? Because well, that's what I was always taught by my mum and dad. You know, yeah. if you don't ask, you don't get. You don't get. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, just following on from um, a couple of conversations ago um, about writing craft and, and writing yeah. process, um, do you have any advice for beginner authors about who want to deepen their writing craft? Um, so courses, books, what are your top tools? What do you, what do you, what do you like for, well, for, for, for not, if uh, probably, you know, people, people at the early stages to, so that they can really sort yeah. of get a, get a grip, I, grip of mm, this craft? Do you know, I, I think, hmm, See, I spent, I'm, I'm sort of humming and hurrying because I spent such a long time as a copywriter being sort of, sort of almost like an engineer of the language about it. You know, I thought, you know, mm. if you go on copywriter Twitter, it's full of people snarking at other copywriters because they don't know how to spell. And, and <laughs> you know, a lot of the sort of creative writing books, I think, you know, like how to write a novel in, in three days or, you know, Dorothy or Brand, all these sort of writing manuals, they, they're sort of quite good, but I think that you can end up being paralysed by anxiety because you've, you've got a book on description and a book on dialogue and a book on this and a book on mm. that. Um, 
I actually think the best thing to do is to read the kind of books you like you would like to write Mm -hmm. actually I mean if you want to write great literary fiction you know the great British novel uh, read those kind of things you know Mm. or or, you know read Zadie Smith or read Irvine Welsh it doesn't really matter if you want to read if you want to write crime what I know about I'd say well read a a ton of crime novels and you'll get a feel for what they're like but read everything you know Stephen King says you know to be a writer you have to write a lot and read a lot to which I would only add the thing that Dr Johnson said which is a fantastic quote which is the mark of an amateur is someone who writes more than they read (laughs) (laughs) and I think what he meant was you know you have to study what's gone before like art students in a in a gallery copying old masters yeah um if you copied out, you know, if you copied out Patricia Heisman, you know, Amazing Mr. Ripley, whatever it's, I can't remember the exact title, but you know, Ripley. Mm-hmm. If you copy one of those out, you have now written a Ripley novel. You didn't write it first, yeah. but you have mm-hmm. written every word of a best-selling international thriller. And, and, and you absorb some of the techniques and some of the necessaries of craft skills through that process. I'm not literally suggesting that as an idea, but... I think the best advice to a, a beginner writer is, is buy a piece of paper or find a piece of paper and a pencil and sharpen it and apply the one to the other. And mm-hmm. then you're a writer. You may be a shit writer. Or you may be a great yeah. writer, but yeah. you can't be a writer if you're not writing. And if you're reading, yeah. with all respect to everyone, you, you, we, you have to read. Mm-hmm. If you're reading, you're not writing. If you're not writing, you're not a writer. And, and one of the sort of things that always pains me is people on social media you know like aspiring novelist I'm like what's yeah. aspiring I mean I'm yeah, yeah, aspiring yeah. Ferrari owner <laughs> yeah. oh so you've got a Ferrari <laughs> no no I mean, believe me there are all sorts of things I can't even talk about that I aspire to be <laughs> yes. Christina Hendricks's next husband I'm aspiring to that it's not going to happen so I think you know if you're a beginner writer listening to this and you've got an idea for a story Find yourself an hour, a piece of paper and a pencil and start writing that story. Or just start writing about the character. Just yeah. start an exercise. This is a story about a woman called Louise. And what Louise wanted more than anything else was a glass of water. And the best day in her life was when somebody brought her a glass of water. And it was the worst day in the world because then they tipped it down the drain in front of her. You know, um, now you're yeah. right. And before yeah. you know it, this story comes to life because you start off with a character and then give them a name and give them a pair of glasses and decide what kind. Do they wear them on a lorgnette or, you know, do they keep losing their glasses on on top of the head? And you can get going quite a long way. And the more you get to know this character, I think, the the closer you are to starting to tell their story rather than doing that sort of what if everyone got switched off when they were 30 years old. As I said, okay, well, what if they did? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Can I ask you a little question, given that you were talking about, like, getting to know and creating Mm. your characters there? Do you do you like your characters? Do you think it's important to like your characters? Do you ever dislike any of your characters? I mean, strongly. Uh, I mean, I know, I guess they're not perfect. but No, I I do. Do you think it's important to like them? I think it's important to care about them. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'd like some of the characters. I mean, I guess my lead characters, you sort of you grow to like them and I think it's an interesting question um, as they all have been because one of the criticisms you sometimes see from reviewers and it always makes you want to smack them although I love you all reviewers thank you for reading my books (laughs) 
is when they say, <laughs> uh, not my books, you know, I see reviews of other books, and they say, well, I did, none of the characters was likable. And we're always taught on sort of, you know, highbrow creative writing, you, oh, these sort of lowbrow people who, who think characters have to be likable. And well, well, maybe they do that. I mean, what, but what Jane said to me, my original commissioning editor was that they have to be relatable. And yeah. I think that's a much more useful word, yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. Can you relate to your characters? Because mm. think of Dexter. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the guy totally is, is a psychopath, in. right? He's a, he's a <laughs> psychopathic serial killer. You yeah. root for him. You root for him, yeah, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Absolutely. Hannibal Lecter, one of the yeah. most ob obnoxious. Well, is he, though? I mean, anyway, we all know who Hannibal Lecter is. He's the hero of all those stories. or he's an, Classically, he's an anti-hero. Yeah. But look at him. He's a gourmet cook. He loves reading, he's cultured, he can win professorships in an Italian art institute. Uh, he, he can't abide rudeness. Most of the people he kills, he kills because they're rude. Well, I mean, who wouldn't like to kill people who push in front of them on the, in the queue? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think you have to make relations. In fact, one very good criticism from a member of one of my sort of, you know, Facebook groups, he said, I just don't, you know, Stella is just very, um, she just exploits everyone. You know, there's no sort of, he, I think he did say, I don't like her, I just don't find her a likeable character. And I realised that in, in my uh, sort of identifying with this sort of burning sort of vendetta-like mindset, I had forgotten to give her any humanity, which maybe she had lost yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, after what yeah. happened to her. But, but that's that not the point. You know, yeah. you, the readers are saying, yeah, but give us something. Because the arc might be in your head for 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 that. But yeah, they don't you know. know. You, exactly. you need to hint at it a little bit, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So I, I that was a good steer from him and in, in the second book I did go out my way to introduce um, a sister-in-law and a brother-in-law and a niece called Polly who was sort of a bit of light relief and you know I did start to humanize her and I think she's become a really great character and I've this particular guy got in touch and I really like what you've done with Stella now I think she's just you know she's there yeah oh that's nice that's nice lovely. to get that feedback isn't yeah, it yeah yeah so um, so we've talked quite a lot there about the story and the process. Um, so if we've got the interior story nailed, a bad cover and blurb can still mm. stop a potential buyer in their tracks, can't they? Oh, so yes. what would your best advice be on cover design and creating a great blurb? Because I know people do struggle with the blurb, don't they? They do. Um, should we do with the blurb first? Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, I, I wrote all my own and then I've all... I've, quite recently rewritten them all and I think mm. some of the nice things about self-publishing um I I would um one of okay here's what not to do don't try and summarize your entire story yeah. in like 75 words you'll yeah. go you'll go mad and it doesn't <laughs> matter because what you know you're if think of it as an advert right think of it as an ad for your book like the Amazon page and the back copy Sorry, the back cover copy. So there's a, there's a, an old copywriting formula called AIDA, which is attention, interest, desire, action. So I would say that the first thing is you get the reader's attention with a hook line or a headline. So that means you know, in bold type at the top of your Amazon thing, it says something like, um, the widow's a cop and she wants revenge. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. that's interesting yeah. Yeah. Widow. so we've got yeah. widow cop and revenge or i had another forget the law she wants revenge yeah. Yeah. yes okay fine so so she's transgressing so she's not just a cop she's potentially a bad cop but she's a widow huh <laughs> so that's how you gain attention and it stops them flicking on then you want to provoke interest so the second letter of aida by you dive into the lead character's dilemma so you say you know uh 
in this, I'll keep going with this thing because I more or less remember, you know, uh, Stella Cole was a high-flying detective in the Met until one day a, a hit-and-run driver ripped her family in two. <gasps> oh no, that's yeah. how awful. And yeah. after years of compassionate leave, uh, you know, she comes back and starts re-investigating her husband's death. So this is where you, the D in Aida is desire. You stimulate desire by fleshing out the story with hints at the style of narrative and the sort of, you know, explosive action, maybe even a couple of reviews. So I had to see, you know, that classic sort of slightly overwrought style where she, you know, she discovered, you know, what she discovers um, shakes her faith in the law and, and almost loses her sanity. Mm-hmm. So it says high level conspiracy. And then you have a couple of things, you know, an amazing book. I, I couldn't put it down. Jeff Smith, you know, Maidenhead or whatever. And then the, the call to action, which all advertising copywriters ought to know about. So in AIDA, the second A is action. Is I would just have a line that says, download your copy now. Because uh-huh. what you do with any piece of copy, and that's what the blurb is, it's an ad copy, is you have to decide what it's for what it's there, what it's trying to do. And the, the exercise I set my students is visualize your reader finishing reading what you've just written. What do they do next? What can you see them doing next? And after a little bit of, you know, to and froing, this person will say, well, I want them to click the download button. I say, right, put that, that's your call to action. Yeah. Yeah. Click the download button now to get your copy of Hit and Run on your Kindle. And there is that thing, isn't it? If you want somebody to do something, why tell not just tell it. them? Tell them to do it. They're much more likely to rather than yeah. just like, mm-hmm. you know. And then you get this sort of mindset thing, which I totally understand. A lot of creative folk, particularly, I think, you know, writery creative folk, they say, oh, well, you know, I don't really like selling. Said, well, <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah. I said, let me ask you a question. Have you got anybody else selling for you? Not really. <laughs> I say, would you want to sell some books? Yeah. And okay, put a call to so, action in. <laughs> mm, put a call to action in. They said, well, I don't like blowing my own trumpet. And I said, well, nobody else is blowing it. It's you so know? true. It's yeah. so if you don't true. toot your own horn, who else? I mean, actually, you can get people to do it. And I have a fantastic lady in the States called Margaret Daly, who is blowing my own trumpet for me over there because she's an expert in US marketing. Mm. But, you know, that's a, that is one of the, there are only three ways to sell books. You have a publisher, you have an agent, as in a marketing agent, not a literary agent. You have a publisher, you have a marketeer who you pay or you do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you've just uploaded a book to, you know, yeah. really just, throw yeah, your yeah. book into It'll just vanish, you know, won't it? Vanish. Yeah, yeah. And they've got, what, I don't know, 20 million books on the oh, Amazon yeah. Kindle store yeah. right now, 30 million. People at Amazon don't even know. There are so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and it yeah. is it, it has to be one of the biggest weaknesses for, for many um, writers is that, you know, they, they don't think about that aspect of writing their book they're so invested in pouring every ounce of their energy into a book and but then it's finished and they haven't even thought about how they're actually going to get it out there mm. and how they're going to convey it, you know th- their message um oh. in in their blur it is that difference isn't it between being a writer and being a publisher yeah well, I think, especially you know, when you're doing it yourself yeah, louise and... you've just you've just nailed it and i think so that the indie publishing is just a fantastic uh disruptive technology and disruptive Mm -hmm. you know you know god love them but i mean traditional publishers are just what the fuck do we do now (laughs) but i don't think they need to worry too much because for me if you take that phrase self-publishing that most writers most indie writers concentrate on the first word they're very focused on self i'm doing it myself it's all for me and they're not really focused on the second word which is by far the most important word which is publishing and Mm -hmm. you say well what does a publisher do well they they edit it they pay for you know copy editors, line editors, cold reads, audiobook narrators, 
proofreaders, cover designers, salespeople, marketing, rights, PR, you know, the works, author relations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, you're getting 100% of the, the revenues. But you, that means you have to do 100% of the work. And, it, you know, I think it's, you know, it kind of where people say, outrageous, you know, I've just had a, an offer from so-and-so and I'm only getting 10%. I said, but you're only doing 10% of the work, darling. I mean, I know you've written 100% <laughs> yeah. of the book. Yeah. But, you know, th- th- there's... And there's they're not probably a... paying for the editing, you know, whereas, no, no. Um, you know, when, you're, when you go alone, you, you yeah. have to, you have to, you have to, you're, all the costs are yours as well. Well, uh, yeah, and you have to own that. And you, you know, if you want to be self-downloadable, if you want to be a self-uploader, fine, that's easy. You can do that in about five minutes after you've finished, after you've saved your Word document. You can basically have it online. Well, not five, maybe could take as many as ten minutes later mm-hmm. with the cover creator widget, um, and it will be a piece of meretricious crap, and nobody will ever buy it. Probably even your relations won't buy it. <laughs> or you can invest mm-hmm. as much money as a publisher would mm-hmm. yeah. and then you you know it's all down to you and th- this is it you know there are no shortcuts I mean I use the same kind of people that Thomas and Mercer use they're, they're yeah. freelance editors like like you are you know yeah you, you can't you know if it's cheap it's probably not very good and if you're doing it it's almost bound to be not very good you know I was advising somebody the other day not to do their own cover design she said, yeah but I am a good artist it doesn't matter yeah, just does yeah. I've really got an idea for the image and I'm great at drawing and I'm like oh, well fine okay you're not paying me for this is why I say go go for it <laughs> yeah. I just that, do it myself. that's the thing like you might be a great artist but there's a difference between being able to draw something and be able to create a really eye-catching compelling purchase inducing cover absolutely yeah they're different things your covers are lovely andy well thank you i mean <laughs> i I'm, I'm actually redoing one whole series at the moment um oh. giving them a sort of a, a refresh but you know we talked about um cover design which is it's the second half of this equation you know, the blurb is one part of the ad uh and and the cover is the other um shall i, shall I tell you some of you give you some of my sort of ideas on well, please on, definitely so yeah. so um Number one, I would always say, let's just say you're writing genre uh, fiction, if it, because as a big super strategic tip, if you're not writing genre fiction, I wouldn't really bother with Kindle. I mean, you, it's just not, it's not set up for that, you know, one great book, uh, you know, you will struggle. You can do it, but you'll struggle to make money. So let's say you're writing crime. Well, what are the genre conventions? What's happening in crime at the moment? And stick with those. They're there for a reason. You might say, oh, God, but everybody's doing it. I'm going to do something completely different. Okay, so, okay fine. Which means that all of your readers will see everyone else's crime books. They go, oh, a crime book. And then they can look at yours and they go, I don't know what that is. But as I like crime, I'll ignore it and go for one of these crime books. Yeah. Or if you're writing, you know, romance, you know, summer romance, it's probably got pink swirly writing. Or there's a sort of, you know, there's lots of psychological thrillers. There's usually a little child's shoe on the pavement or yellow and red are quite sort yeah, of, you know, yeah, yeah, trope yeah, colours. They uh, they're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. So stick with the genre conventions or bend them a little bit, you know, twist them a bit. Um, the other big thing I would say is look at them at thumbnail size. You know, reduce mm. them down because you know, I've been working with designers since I was 24, a long time. And designers always have the biggest screens and the best, you know, tech. And they'll present with proofs and it'll be like, you know, two foot by one foot tall. You know, oh, my God, that is absolutely beautiful. Look at the little money spiders between her eyelashes. That is and they, they spell my name. That is just genius. <laughs> we'll have that. 
and they go oh great fantastic and then you shrink it down onto amazon what the fuck is that it's just like this yeah. sort of mud yeah Andy, that's but, an amazing tip i had <laughs> never even thought of that but it's so true people can you sit there on your ipad mm-hmm. and you can scroll and you can go boom 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 in seconds yeah, yeah so yeah. It, it has to be there has to be something that's that works at that at that mm. level and and that comes back to that point you made about sort of being able to identify the genre um which as I think, you're, yeah. you're picking yeah i was at a um a conference a couple of years back and there was a one of the talks was on self-publishing and mm. cover design was touched on and the publisher there related the story of somebody who had done that exact thing that you advise against uh, Andy mm. and had insisted on creating their own design that was different and um, stood out not in a good way compared to everything else that was in the genre and they couldn't understand why their sales were poor and eventually they were persuaded to go with a, a more conventional design if you like that that fitted in with the tropes of that particular genre mm. and their sales went up something like 600 percent in oh a my line. goodness yeah oh, it was, wow. it was yeah. unbelievable because it, it people were just as you said they were just passing over it completely mm. uh, which is you know people say oh no you shouldn't judge a book by its cover but people do you know they, yeah, no, they have expectations yeah, you're right yeah. I mean and that, that sort of story doesn't surprise me and you, you think <laughs> all sorts of you know if you look at you know it helps I guess that I've had a career in marketing but you look at packaging generally mm-hmm. uh, look, look at gin packaging at the moment there are certain I mean although they're like a, a trillion different bottles of sort of you know designer sort of artisanal gin at the moment they all basically are you know playing a tune on the same basic idea and whereas rum is all completely different, you know, mm. rum has sort of much more primary colours and is some busty mm. girl in a sort of naval, a Matalo's outfit, you know, or whatever. Mm. Whiskey will be something different. If you package up gin like rum, nobody's going to buy it. Rum buyers will go, oh, gin, yuck. Gin yeah. buyers won't even notice it because unlike you and your marketing team who have spent like nine hours obsessing over this cover and you've shown it to your family and you've shown it to your babysitter and your hairdresser, what do you think? Which do you like, the yellow one or the blue? Oh, I think the yellow one's much better. I, I think, you know, I'll make up a, a statistic. I should think the average reader spends about 15 milliseconds looking at the cover of, of a book mm. and yeah. not even a big size. They've got that little strip of also boughts, you know, along the bottom of your yeah. search yeah. or wherever it's coming out. And they go, oh, oh, that looks interesting. Basically, oh, that looks like the last book I read that I enjoyed. That looks like Jack Reacher. Yeah. That's all you need it to do. Yeah. As long as I think, oh, yeah, but it's not Jack Reach. It doesn't matter. It's not all it's there to do is to stop them scrolling past your book. You're blurred. It it's, it's the visual it? version of that A in, in it is. It is absolutely. In, in it's angle. attention. Yeah. Get grab mm-hmm. attention. Yeah. Also, I mean, I could say, you know, try and avoid sludgy colors. You know, mm-hmm. use what I would call high chroma colors, you know, bright blues, bright oranges, bright yellows, bright reds because they catch the eye. We are, you know, from sort of evolutionary biology, our brains are attuned to things that are basically what's called high salience. In other words, if you imagine a sort of a forest and it's all green, green stuff isn't dangerous to human beings. Green stuff isn't going to eat us. We don't really eat it. We can't have sex with it to make more of us. Things that are bright orange or stripy black and orange or red will probably bite us, sting us, eat us or kill us. So we, 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 our brains are evolved to notice bright coloured things. And on that bombshell, any <laughs> listeners. <laughs> How's that for an ending? I tell you, no, do you know what? I've got one more question for you. Go on. Go and I've it. got a question after that as well. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here all night. 
Um, uh, can we? Can I ask you about audiobooks? How important is it for you to have audio versions of your books available? And do you narrate them yourself or work with a voice artist? Uh, it's it's very important to me to have them, but I don't really know why. I don't make a huge amount of money from audiobooks, although I'm hoping that I will over time. You know, they they mm-hmm. they earn out their fees and then they, they you know they start making small profit but I, I feel that you know because I think of myself as a storyteller you know I get a lot of emails from people saying and, and comments on my Facebook group you know when are you going to when's the audiobook available and I think well you know it's a bit kind of stick in the mud so well I'm not going to do them because they, they're too expensive it's like I feel I have a sort of responsibility if I yeah. put my name out there so that I tell stories that you like and they say great can I have it on my you know on my iPhone I think you should say yes I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'd love yep. to do a graphic novel come to that. And I have a friend who does them, you know, illustrates them, but that's probably going out of my age group. So it's very important to me, kind of because I think it's part of the job. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I did think about narrating them myself. Uh, and I even did a, not a screen test, whatever the audio equivalent is, mm-hmm. put it on my Facebook group. And the comments were very sweet, but it's like, you know, <laughs> stick to the day job. Yes, yes. So really? I've worked with, oh yeah. Oh. So I've worked with a few, three really great, voice artists and what they do is completely not what I can do and I have no real desire to do it the, the only thing I, I feel sorry is, is um, Helen Moore who Ed, who narrates Stella Cole who is borderline psychopathic with grief and has done some very bad things to some even worse people Stella Hel- not Helen Stella does but she she started calling herself <laughs> Hell Spell on her text to me so, and I hear this voice on my voice like fucking hell it's Stella and she has to sort of go and have a lie down, I think, after some of the more sort of, uh, you know, vibrant scenes in the book. Really? So, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Just, Andy, that was that was all a bit much. You know, I've got to you know, <laughs> sort of recover. But you know, they're, they're fantastic people. And I, yeah. that, again, my advice is always, you know, unless you're a professional in this particular thing, and possibly even then, don't do it yourself. Hire a professional. You wouldn't do your own brain surgery, I hope. <laughs> you know you wouldn't do your own I certainly wouldn't do my own plumbing I did try it once and managed to bang five nails into a hot water pipe on the basis that well the first one was really hard so I think I better hit it harder <laughs> now I know how hard to hit it I'll do the other four the same way and this plumber was just like he's like he's just rolling his eyes and said did you not stop after one and I said well no because I thought I got the hang of it after one <laughs> and you just for the if anyone's oh. interested you it's very difficult to block off a pipe with boiling water coming out of it with your thumb. <laughs> I, do you know what I want to say to you? Like that—that's kind of so stating the bleed and obvious that I don't know even how you got in that situation. I'm a man. And then, as that's I was how. gonna, well, but listen, I—I <laughs> I didn't. I did a sort of similar thing in that I kind of decided to repair the. Oh, tap on my shower and could, didn't know how to turn the water off because the stopcock was hidden and ended mm. up um, unscrewing the hot tap where with all the water oh, spurting nice out of me and just having to sort of like a bit like you with the thumb. I had I was sort yeah, of towels. In to yeah, yeah, I use towels myself. as well. Yeah, yeah. So I I kind of get how you know there's that belief for it in the moment that I can be a plumber. It oh, can't, yeah, self, it can't be rocket science, can it? <laughs> No, and you can. You, it is, is rocket science. You can kind of pull it back to publishing by saying it's the, it's basically the same. You know, you yeah. will have the the literary experience of being squirted with boiling water yeah. if you try and design your own book cover. Yeah, and it will cost you more in the end because eventually, mm-hmm. when you've you've you know not had any income from your books, you will pay somebody you know mm-hmm. a modest sum of money, four hundred pounds maybe, five hundred pounds. Yeah. 
or, or less if you're prepared to go to Serbia or, you know, Mozambique, where people hang out and do this kind of stuff, you will have something that looks as good as the next, you know, mm-hmm. whoever. Yep. Jodie yeah. and you can have a professional looking book. <laughs> Andy, I'm going to ask you my bonus question yeah, here, yeah, if yeah. I may. Um, so we've, we've mentioned Jack Reacher a couple of times. Mm. And it made me think of um, when he made an appearance in a Stephen King novel. Now, did, do you know about that? Which one is that? Because I'm he's such under, a fan of Stephen King. Yeah, he's in Under the Dome. When they're, oh, when, when they're in yes. the dome and they're... I haven't read that. I haven't oh, read that yeah. one. Well... Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> somebody it's a spoiler in the middle, not at the yeah. end. It's not right at the end, but they do decide that they, they, they need somebody to come in and solve a problem. Yeah. And they decide to get Jack Reacher in. And oh. I was and I was reading them and I was like, what? The the actual Jack Reacher? And it was. That's so, very metatextual, isn't it? It is. So it made me think, who would you like to do that sort of cross narrative with? Who would you like your character oh. to appear oh. in? That's that tough one to throw. Well, to be, at him. Isn't one it? of my one of my characters borrowed it to be or, in somebody yeah, else's. Where would you like like Gabriel oh, Ford to turn up somewhere? Gosh, that's a really good one. Well, I think <laughs> yeah, it would have to be. Where would it have to be? Would, would Gabriel and Stella ever meet? Do you know yeah. they have? They have, and people love it. I've done a crossover story. Right. Um, where it was Ivory Nation, which came out in January, about a sort of, I thought, what if there was a, you know, Justin Trudeau, I thought, imagine a cross between Justin Trudeau and uh, one of these sorts of uh, extreme right, but very charismatic, sort of European populists, mm-hmm. sort of the guy in Austria, mm-hmm. there have been various of them. And I imagine it's sort of super charismatic, ultra left politician who, um, makes in a sort of Blairite type thing of the people's princess essentially takes power at the at the ballot box uh and just then it all goes to shit and he's involved in all sorts of global corruption and Stella comes in to help him out because increasingly because I've got more and more interest in crime and less and less in the whole special forces thing more of his adventures have been sort of quasi sort of legal if you like in the sense yeah. that there needs to be police involvement and, and, and you know they'd met somewhere else and it, it just brought her back in and it just seemed and he'd been in one of her books as a sort of mopper up right at the end and people love it you know yeah. and I thought yeah. will, will yeah. I go for this or are you sort of breaking the law but my, my kids you know who are 16 and 18 they'll talk about things you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC Universe yeah. and this idea of a universe is something that people I mean my readers are kind of older than the sort of Marvel type, uh, typical, they're sort of in the you know, 50s and upwards for the most part, um, but they totally love it, you know, and they, they kind of get it. Um, Ford, I think, is a standalone. He he just exists in mm-hmm. Salisbury in his own world, but he's a much more realistic character. Stella and Gabriel are kind of wish fulfillment characters, if you know what I mean. They, they do the things that we would love to be able to do, uh, but never could, whereas Ford pretty much, you know, is a police officer and he, he he sticks to the law mm-hmm. but those two yeah but I, I'd have to think about that actually where would I like them to appear I could say I could say Rankin's Edinburgh that would be a real feather in the cap I guess yeah yeah, yeah. why not you don't ask you don't get Andy. what did you know right. yeah. I could try couldn't I you could no harm yeah <laughs> Andy um our time's just about up and I, I really have to thank you so much for sharing so Absolutely. much valuable information oh, it's, it's been, been a pleasure great. yeah it's been a lot um, where can people get in touch with you to find out more about your books? I would say very quickly, andymaslin.com is my mm-hmm. website. I'm on Twitter at 
Andy underscore Maslin. And I have a Facebook group uh, called The Wolf Pack, which is obviously oh. free to join. Uh, we've got about 3,000 members. Fantastic people, actually. Uh, always, you know, up for chatting. Um, if you Google me, basically, I'm all over the internet. So you, you would find me. Great. Thank you, Andy. Uh, and Thank just you. To echo what Denise said, it's 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 been such an absolutely packed with really, really great stories, but also actionable actionable advice that I think oh, authors can take away and learn from you. Thank you for that. My pleasure. So that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whichever platform you prefer. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to the Editing Podcast. She's been Louise. She's been Denise. And he's been Andy. Join us again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.